I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Rob Kempson is a theater artist and educator who works primarily as a director and playwright. He is the artistic director of the Capitol Theater in Port Hope, and the co-artistic director at ARC, where he is directing Marius von Meyenberg's Martyr, running from January 13th to 29th at the Aki Studio Theatre in Toronto. In this conversation, we talk about his journey to becoming artistic director at the Capitol Theatre, what the job of artistic director looks like at a local-slash-regional theatre in Ontario, how he sees the role of artistic director in growing the next generation of theatre leadership, and much more. Here's our conversation. Well, Rob, thank you for, for joining me today. Now, many, many years ago, we had a conversation. I had a podcast under a different name. So we've had a conversation before, but a lot has changed. Yes, a lot has changed. And I, I'm glad you said that because I thought that was the case, but I yeah. know for sure. Absolutely. So uh, one of the things that's changed is uh, you're the artistic producer at the Capitol Theater. Yeah, actually, and my title was just changed. I'm the artistic director at the Capitol Theater now. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, just because I think sometimes the nuances of artistic producer, artistic director, um, these are titles, maybe people don't know the, the nuance between them. Uh, what's the what's the difference between an artistic producer and an artistic director? You know, I think that it is constantly shifting and, and really based on whatever each company is looking for. So I'm also uh, one of the co-artistic producers of ARC, which is a Toronto theatre company. Um, and so I kind of feel like I, I put my foot into both of those worlds. Ultimately, in a contemporary Canadian theatre setting, all artistic directors are doing all sorts of producing things. Um, and I think what this initially was meant to reflect was, you know, that this position is much more than just selecting plays to put on stage and then making sure that they get on stage. You know, on any given day, I might be decorating a Christmas tree. Uh, I might be figuring out someone's billet. I might be doing a Facebook post. I might be contracting. So, you know, all of those sort of catch all things. Right. Um, and I think that when the board posted for this position, they were just really looking to make sure that they found someone who had experience and abilities in those areas, in addition to the artistic stuff. And so uh, I think I've kind of been an artistic director since the beginning, um, but uh, it, it maybe took them a while to realize that. And what's been great is is by now having that title, it uh, ensures that the people in our theater community are confused about what my role is at the theater. So sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, speaking of that community, this is a, a gorgeous theater. I haven't been in it. I've been by it. And just the exterior itself is, uh, seems spectacular to me. This gorgeous theater in, in Port Hope. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, the Capitol Theater. Yeah, it's a really interesting space. It was built as an atmospheric cinema in 1930, um, and it received uh, Canadian Heritage designation in 2017. And so what's really interesting inside the Capitol is that 
because it was built as this atmospheric cinema, you it's kind of like the Winter Garden Theater for folks who have been there, where you're inside the set of something. And so our theme is a Normandy castle. And so there's two huge like medieval looking houses on either side of the stage. Um, and the full surround is a cornice with all sorts of brickwork. Um, and then a big, beautiful blue sky um, that actually uh, makes the room kind of echoey, which our sound designers don't love. But uh, it does go right up over the top of you. And so it functioned as a cinema until the mid-1980s and then fell into disrepair when the original manager stepped away from the work. Um, and then in the mid-1990s, a group of very dedicated volunteers, many of whom are still involved with the theater, sort of... Um, renovated, rejuvenated, found a bunch of funding, um, and really made it into what it is today. So they added a bunch of uh, apron to the stage, an orchestra pit, a rake, um, and those same volunteers have recently done an expansion that was completed during the pandemic uh, for a new rehearsal hall and a production studio and an expanded lobby space. So the theater is a kind of a cool mix of, you know, 1930 heritage, as well as these elements that were added um, in the past hundred years. Now, since that, I mean, it's been operating as as, as a theater for a while. Um, is there? Did you have a, a particular goal or mandate when you came in as the artistic producer slash artistic director? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the number one thing for me, you know, in my career is making sure that we're supporting Canadian artists, that we're supporting Canadian artwork, um, and that we're helping to do what ultimately we are mandated to do, which is to share the arts and artistic processes with a community. And so what I was most excited about uh, in taking on this position at the Capitol was the connection to community. So the Port Hope is a town of 16,000 people. It is a very artistic town. It is very uh, engaged. People are really involved in what happens in and outside of the, the region. And so this theater is really, you know, at the center of that activity. And what's so exciting for me is to hear those traditions, to take on that legacy, and then to look at how I can move that forward. So, you know, we're never going to, I'm never going to just do what has been done before because it's been done before. That's not who I am as a leader and certainly not who I am as an artist. And so for me, it's about taking that legacy on and then thinking about how I can uh, move us forward push that needle to a more progressive place. And so that balance is always at the heart of what I'm I'm doing here. So if I'm going to give people something that's familiar, I will present it with an unfamiliar twist. Or if I'm going to give people something unfamiliar, I will try to um, wrap it in something that feels familiar so that we can be having a conversation with their audience rather than just appeasing them. I think that's a really interesting distinction, the difference between having the conversation and appeasing. Um, as far as as the shows that you've that you've done at the Capitol so far, and this is probably not a fair question because you know artistic director you you love all of your babies. Um, is there a show that you've done that was one that you were like, I've always been excited to do this show. This one's my favorite. Is there one show that stands out like that? I mean, uh, you really hit the nail on the head. Like uh, they're all my babies. Um, and yeah, at the end of the season this past year. Uh, I went on <laughs> a little tour of Ontario theaters and saw a bunch of stuff at Stratford and Chalk. And the joy of making theater is that everything, whether or not you're the director of it, is really close to who you are. So I, I, I will start by saying that. But, you know, this summer we had a closer walk with Patsy Cline, uh, Stag and Doe, and then our summer season finished with 9 to 5 the musical. And 9 to 5 is a show that I have loved for many years. I'm a huge Dolly Parton fan. I saw the original production on Broadway, and I just think that it has such a unique ability, as Dolly does in all of her work, to speak to people from a real diverse cross-section of humanity. Um, And so, and we saw that in the theater. And so it was a beautiful production. I'm very proud of what we did in terms of the design and the production elements and the cast, but I'm actually mostly excited about the way that that conversation started with the community. So you see you know, a newcomer to Canada who's just arrived in Port Hope, who knows about Dolly Parton, who comes to that show. And then you see someone who's lived here for most of their lives, who's also coming to that show. And then you see someone who just moved here during the pandemic. And all of those people have come to see 95 The Musical. And I think that any any production that can bring people together in that way is always going to be my most uh, exciting work. 
I mean, you met, you've mentioned a couple of times uh, uh, sort of the makeup of, of Port Hope. You mentioned uh, the conversation. You've mentioned the town. You just mentioned uh, different kinds of people who might have come to the show. Uh, Port Hope is, I think I mentioned, uh, a gorgeous town in, in southern Ontario. I knew it for years without ever seeing it as uh, uh, I had family in Belleville. So it was like one of those markers as a kid, almost at Belleville um, sort of yeah. thing. Um, but it is a town, it's, it's main street is, is very, uh, uh, it's like a classic main street with all kinds of great little shops and things like that. Um, what is it that excites you about a place like Port Hope for theater? I think that some of the best theater in Canada is happening in small places. Um, and I think that, you know, the artistic leaders who are best able to use those small places as their audience base do so by knowing how to listen to your audience and also knowing how to not listen to your audience so i could produce mama mia every year from now until the end of time and i would sell really well for the first little while and then it would you know peter off a bit but still be really good sales that's not a sustainable model for us it's not a sustainable model for anyone and the reason for that is because the demographics of this town, like everywhere else in Canada, are changing and changed. And we're not looking at towns that look like a whole bunch of people who are all the same anymore. That's just not what a small town is. And so in the same way that, you know, we think of Toronto as one of the most diverse cities in the world, Port Hope is remarkably diverse and much more so than people might expect. And it is my job to serve all of those constituents, regardless of their age or background or sexuality or demographic or experience with theater. And so what I really love about this kind of work and what I've experienced as a freelancer working in lots of different small communities is the ability for one's work on stage to make a real impact in a community is much greater when that community is small um, because you can have people who don't agree sitting beside each other. You can have people who don't vote the same way sitting beside each other. And, you know, I go to enough Toronto theater to know that I'm sitting in a room with people who are pretty similar to me. They might not look like me. They might be a different age than me. But, you know, we're not we're not attracting a whole bunch of people who vote differently than me. Whereas in Port Hope, that very much is the case. And in Gananoque, where I've worked before, that's very much the case. And in Sudbury, that's very much the case. And so I think the power of theaters to actually make change and move that needle in a progressive direction is significant in smaller places. And uh, and I certainly love that I get to be part of that. Now, uh, you mentioned sort of being in dialogue with the community and being able to speak to the, the community as it changes. How does a, a small theater, um, how, I mean... This might, as, as, as a person who's currently living in a large city, this might seem like a ridiculous question in a small town, but how do you keep on top of the changes uh, to a town? I mean, it, it, it's about, uh, I think, actually just listening carefully and responding. You know, uh, Port Hope is the kind of town where on my very first day, I went to The Social, which is a local restaurant, um, for a glass of wine with my brand new colleague, Aaron Pierce, who's the managing director here and who's absolutely incredible. And she and I were just having a glass of wine to like meet each other, you know, really know what each other are. And at our table was uh, a town councillor who also runs that business, who with their partner also runs the media business that does our website. And the person serving us was my next door neighbor in Fort Hope. And that is not uncommon. So I think the way you find out about the community is by being in the community and by making those connections and not being afraid to introduce yourself. You know, like I, I go into a restaurant and I know all the servers' names because I've spent time trying to learn those names. Mm. Not because that is good business for me or anything, but just because that's how it is when you're in a community of this size. And it also means that when I ask them to come to my show, they trust me in a different way. And they don't always come, but they, <laughs> and we have a conversation about it. And, uh, and so I think it's about just actually listening. And as I go about my daily business and I go about my work, that I make sure that I take the time to make those connections and ensure that they're authentic connections. Um, 
because that's the only way to have any theater work is when you're making authentic connections with people who might come to see it. Is that something that's new for uh, uh, the the Capitol Theater to have that kind of inter? I'm not sure that I know enough of the history of the Capitol Theater to know if having an artistic director who's bringing shows in and doing shows doing a season is new for the Capitol Theater and if there's been that kind of dialogue in the community before. So I'm curious if yeah. about that. Our history is really strange and uh, parts of it are pretty dark and not great. Um, and I'm not scared of talking about that. Uh, I, I certainly, it was all before me. Um, but, you know, we've had some leadership that uh, didn't behave very well. Uh, we had some problems with harassment and assault. Um, we had problems with sort of community conversations around that. Um, and so in in me starting and working with my colleague, Aaron, the managing director, we really focused on turning a new page where we acknowledge all of those problems and we also look at ensuring that those problems never happen again at the theater. So that's the boring stuff, you know, that people don't, it's not very sexy to talk about all the policy, right? Or to talk about the way that you're working at a board level to make sure that you put safety mechanisms in place or what our policies are for you know, review and performance review and all of that sort of stuff. But that those kinds of systems are the things that this theater really was missing. So we did have some some dynamic leadership in the past who, you know, certainly had an impact on the community. But I think the real place where um, that fell flat is by then not reinforcing that by creating sustainable systems within the organization. And where Aaron and I have really put our focus is in making sure that the organization is sustainable by ensuring that we have appropriate staffing, by ensuring that we have appropriate policy, that we have appropriate ticketing systems, all of that stuff to keep everyone in check, make sure that we're accountable to our funders and our supporters, and really making sure that we're accountable to our community. You mentioned that stuff not being sexy, but it is very important. Like, Oh my gosh, it's, it's the most important. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, those yeah. kinds of things that you mentioned, they, they can't just harm the reputation of a theater or a company. They can destroy it. Well, and it's, but it's more than that, you know, uh, for me, uh, upon arrival, there were certain things that I just expected would be true of a theater that's 25 years old. And those things were not true. And that's not to blame anyone who, you know, was in this position before me, but it's stuff that, you know, we need to get back on board with and, and it doesn't always show up well. And so it's not the kind of thing you write a press release about. And that's, that's the part that I think is so, um, fun about running a theater of this size is making those difference that make the running of it a lot better and a lot easier and that people might not even know but we know because instead of getting them that email after several weeks and turmoil and all the rest of it we actually have a new system so that that email goes out to them and that they get the communication they need really easily so it's it's those little bits and pieces you know, when I started, we didn't have subscribers. We didn't have any public funding outside of our municipality. We had a staff of two, and, and I was one of them, full-time staff of two. And now we have a full-time staff of seven. We have a brand new ticketing system. We have subscriptions. We have uh, a, you know, a much more engaged and positive volunteer base. We work with an incredible group of volunteers at the Capitol. And all of that stuff only happened because you know, my colleague and I started sort of turning over rocks and saying, hey, could we do this better? Like, I bet we could. So let's figure out how we can make that happen. And, you know, that has been the real journey of the past year for me. Now, you are, at least as far as, you know, looking at your website and things like that, you're, you've been primarily uh, a director. Um, and I do want to hear about your road to becoming a director. But at, uh, since we're talking about being an artistic director, what was the path to becoming an artistic director, making the move from being primarily a director to somebody who's making uh, uh, creative decisions about about the theater, you know, directing as well, but like being the artistic director of a theater? You know, uh, Phil, this is a great question because I think people don't know the difference between a director and an artistic director, and they're not even remotely associated with one another um, in, in my head. So uh, alongside being a freelance director for a number of years and uh, and also being a freelance writer for a number of years, you know, my actual bread and butter has been in working in arts administration. So I've worked in almost every department of uh, not-for-profit contemporary professional Canadian theater. Um, 
through various different organizations. And that is how I've learned everything that I know. Uh, so I have a drama degree and a music degree, and that certainly like set me on a path. But I have learned from some incredible mentors who allowed me access to what it is that they do to make their companies work. And so, you know, I worked at Canadian Stage as the uh, community relations manager and then the education manager under both Marty Bragg and Matthew Jocelyn. I then worked under Andy McKim at Theatre Passmarize, the associate artistic producer. I worked as the associate artistic director at the Thousand Islands Playhouse under Ashley Corcoran, where I learned a ton. Uh, I ran my own company for a while. I ran the Paprika Festival for a while. And so, you know, being an artistic director is uh, is having a vision, but it's not a vision just for what you're putting on stage and who you're, you're hiring to do that. It really is about knowing all of the bits and pieces that go into making theater, which is making a great budget and knowing how to stick to it and knowing how to hire the right people to help you achieve that budget and you know uh writing those donor letters and having those conversations with your uh funders and your municipality and all of that sort of stuff and you know i would say that as an artistic director the thing that people see is when i launch a season and the thing that people don't see is the you know 12 or 14 months of work that went into launching that season. And that is the part that I actually really love. I find it super interesting. I know that lots of other artistic directors also find that part really interesting and fulfilling, but it is the thing that separates it from directing because, you know, to be a great director, you have to have a laser focus um, in exactly what's happening in that rehearsal hall and in a moment to moment so that you can get a great show on stage. But as an artistic director, you kind of have to have a soft focus where you're kind of looking at everything all at the same time and trying to make the best decision you can while leaning on, hopefully, an amazing team like I have. It sounds like you, you, you've you had some great mentors as you've grown as, as an arts administrator in all of those roles that you mentioned. Um, I remember not so long ago, people lamenting about the lack of mentorship in the arts administration, which is why we would often hear people complaining about why do theater companies look and bring in somebody from England or Amer or the US to to uh, to to be the artistic director. Why what's why do we not have people here? What's wrong with the people here uh to do that? And I think that that from what I'm hearing in out in the world is that is that there's more work to preparing the next generation of 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 artistic directors and artistic leadership is there a plan for you as far as uh 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 your support and 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 work to uplift the next artistic producer director the next leaders uh as far as the that your theater or other theaters yeah i mean the biggest problem uh, in terms of that trajectory in Canada, I really think is about scale. So, you know, uh, it is a very rare place where one can go from being an assistant director to being an artistic director in a month. And that was my journey at the end of 2021. I was an assistant director of the Shaw Festival. And the next day I was an artistic director of the Capitol Theatre. Obviously, those scales are different, but, you know, that's not necessarily a jump that should be able to be made. Um, and I think that what we tend to do a bad job of is, you know, either launching people really quickly to to high positions or or big positions or big jobs that they maybe aren't ready for, or making people sit for a while in a kind of emerging place where they kind of bubble along for too long and there isn't any sort of upward trajectory. We also suffer from the fact that there aren't a lot of mid-sized opportunities in Canada, right? We have a lot of really big and a lot of really small. And I don't think that any of that is insurmountable. I think the biggest thing is, you know, being able to see strength in people who need to have their strength seen and being willing to give people opportunities when perhaps other people haven't. And so, you know, looking at a person not only from their resume and experience, but also from what they present in an interview setting or in an audition. And so I have an open door policy for assistant directors on all of my work. So um, we had two assistant directors this past year. We have one right now on the Panto that we're working on. Um, we have two assistant directors next year. Um, 
And I hope that people want to assist me and the other directors who I bring in so that we can all be sharing and, and learning from one another. Um, I would love for us as a community to be able to access more funding to support assistant directing. Um, but in terms of arts administration, you know, I, I actually think that one of the best things that, you know, someone looking to, to grow in arts leadership can do is to work in a marketing department as a marketing coordinator or, or work in a development department as a development coordinator for a while and see if you like it and see what you can learn from it. You know, my, I have a dear friend who, uh, is the director of development at YPT and, you know, she's brilliant at her job. Uh, I've known her since we were in university and when we got out of university, she thought she was going to be a stage manager and now she's the director of development at YPT. And that's because she took a job and realized that she had a skill in an area that she didn't know she had skill in. She did some additional training. She got another job. She did some additional training. She got another job. And then, you know, you land here. And so I think, you know, uh, theater careers, we love to glorify actors a lot. Um, I was an actor for about five minutes. Uh, I don't really like acting, uh, but I don't think that that makes me less than as an artist. I think that that means that I know where my lanes are and I try to sort of live in those, those lanes. And so I think what we can do a better job of, and, and certainly I've taught both at the high school and post-secondary level quite a lot, is by making sure that we talk about arts administration as the really cool job that it is. Um, and not just talking about actors or directors or writers, you know, talking about stage management and production and producing and making sure that people feel empowered by those artistic opportunities as well. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of a lot of courses that are primarily about uh, the the on stage portion. And occasionally there's a little bit of a side occasionally a little bit of a side uh, directing or like uh, stage management, that sort of thing. It's pretty rare to find a, a really robust course that, that that covers all of those. Well, and that's why, you know, the work of Generator is so amazing. A company that, you know, takes artists and helps them become really great producers and gives them those tools, you know, because they think the more that we can empower folks who are artistically minded to create and develop and produce their own work, the more that we might find that some of those folks want to apply their creative minds to arts administration in a more significant and permanent way. And that's that's the way to grow the industry, because I think you think of it as being quite boring. But I can tell you, having done lots of those jobs, that they're really not. And it's a, a really great way for you to meet people and, and learn more. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned preparing to do uh, a panto at, uh, at the Capitol Theater. And um, this this episode will air in the new year, so we'll be out. Okay, great. Okay, <laughs> so I won't like like pitch it. Yeah, you don't have to. You don't have to like. You don't have to pitch it or anything. But one of the things that I think is so important about 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 the the Christmas panto, the tradition of the Christmas pantomime, is that for many people, that is their first exposure to to theater. It is that moment that they that is the potential to make a new theater goer. Uh, yeah. And in Port Hope, it's a, a wildly important tradition. You know, we sell more tickets to the Panto than anything else. Um, and I've never done a Panto before. Oh, that's exciting. And the writers of this Panto have also never written a Panto before. Um, and that was on purpose because, you know, uh, I love the original sort of British tradition of a Panto. Um, and the way that that has sort of been adapted over time in this setting is that we have a family panto and then we have a naughty panto and the naughty panto as i understand it has gone pretty far off the rails um in a way that i don't think i could ethically stand behind um but also in a way that i think challenges what i really believe theater to be which is a, an incredibly inclusive art form you know panto has often featured jokes that are made at the expense of marginalized people um much like a lot of farce that we're sort of looking at with new lenses these days. But, you know, Panto has lots of racism and misogyny and homophobia um, present in it. And I don't think that those are the funniest jokes. And I think that we can make funnier ones that might mean that folks who identify in those marginalized groups actually feel like they can come to see the Panto at the Capitol and it can be a tradition that they can take part in as well. And so we've actually gone out of our way to uh, reinvent the panto this year. 
And so we look at all of the traditions of the Panto and we sort of created our own version of those traditions. And so you will still laugh your face off. You will still, uh, you know, have lots of songs and dances and all the naughty jokes you've been, you know, shake a stick at, but they're, they're going to be inclusive. They're just not going to use, um, marginalized people as a punching bag. And to me, that's this kind of conversation with my community and with my audience you know, I can do a naughty panto where we put in lots of swear words and people wearing very little clothing and make a bunch of sexist jokes and a bunch of gay jokes. But like, as a gay person, I'm not going to feel great about putting that on stage. Nor am I going to feel great about putting those artists through that process of having to put that on stage. So we spent uh, a lot of time. I commissioned a brand new script from Paloma Nunez and her husband, Kevin Whalen. And, uh, and you know, what's been really fun in the development and also really challenging is acknowledging the places where sometimes those panto traditions are there because they work really well. And so which ones of those do we need to keep in? And sometimes they're there in a way that we have some questions about. And so which ones of those do we want to adapt? And and how can we make sure that we are uh, inviting those audiences, both legacy audiences to the panto and new audiences to the panto in for a holiday tradition that they can then trust the Capitol Theater around feeling like it's a safe place for them too. I always felt, I mean, it's interesting because I don't think I have experience with the children's panto and the naughty panto. <laughs> no one does because it's not part of the British experience. It's just right. something that uh, a few small towns have invented. It's just interesting because to me, the most successful uh, uh, pantos that I've seen are the ones where you it's for the kids, but you like the Muppets, you have a few, you have enough in there for the adults to, to keep them entertained as well. I, yes. And that is, is what I thought we were making. Um, and, uh, you know, I quickly heard from my community what the expectation is and our naughty pantos are, are wildly popular. And so for me, that means, okay, like where, where do we want to stretch those muscles? I like dirty jokes. I think that they're funny too. But I like dirty jokes that, you know, don't come at anyone's expense. I like yeah. dirty jokes that are just dirty. Yeah. And so um, we've created a base version of the Panto, which is sort of our family version. There's a, there's some jokes in there that, you know, hit hub of the kids' heads and that kind of thing. And then we are taking an approach where we're sort of setting different areas where we are allowing the actors to improvise or we are allowing for specific um, switch outs of lines. Um, to sort of dirty it up. But there's a few things that we've done in it that kind of already do that for us based on an audience suggestion that then rings true through the whole play. So I'm interested to see, you know, the the last ingredient for any show is an audience, and that is never more true than at a panto because of how interactive it is. And so we're going to learn a lot next week when we start previews. And, you know, I'll uh, I'll learn even more about panto than I have already. That's super exciting. You're very close to to having people actually see it. Um, Absolutely. Is there something that you're excited to learn once the audience starts to experience it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, literally everything. You know, uh, I think the most specific thing I'm because I I've never done it before, so I, it might be terrible. I mean, I, I would only say that because I know this is airing in January. But um, I, I'm excited to see if the things that I think work really well are, receive the same kind of response that I expect. You know, and. I really like being in a place where, and I tell my artists this all the time, you know, wherever you expect there is going to be applause in Port Hope, at least three days a week, there won't be that applause. Or wherever you expect there's going to be a laugh, at least three days a week, there isn't going to be a laugh. So we have, you know, three previews before we open. I'm certainly not going to be using those previews as the only test case audiences that we have, but I'm excited to with the actors and with this company in general, find out more about what people really respond to so that I can use that as information moving forward. Um, and that can help us make even better pantos in the future. That's very exciting. I, I imagine there will be lots of notes taken over the run of, of this particular panto. Yeah. Yeah. I, was, I, I will have to see many Nazi performances to see where we, where we want to go. <laughs> um, now, just to, to, to leave uh, Port Hope and the Capitol Theater uh, for a bit, 
Um, I'm curious. Uh, I'm always curious about people's uh, uh, theater origin stories and what brings them to where they are now. So for you, what was your first exposure to theater? What made you want to do it? Uh, I, you know, it's such a good question. I think I, I'm sure this is not true. I'm sure my parents, uh, if they listen to this, will call me and tell me that this is wrong. But the first sort of significant memory I have of theater is seeing Phantom of the Opera, as is true of many folks my age. Um, and my parents are not in any way artistic at all. Uh, my brother, similarly, no one in my family really is. And I, um, I was the kind of kid who like asked if I could play piano. Um, and we didn't own a piano and my parents didn't know anyone who played piano. So there, there was a, you know, I was kind of that black sheep right away. Um, and I think my, my parents really recognized that and tried to make space for artistic experiences. Um, so, you know, we'd go see like one big show a year and maybe that was later it was Stratford or Shaw, but early it was, you know, Mervis shows. And I can remember going to see crazy three with my grandma and my mom and dad and, you know, that kind of thing. But Phantom of the Opera, I remember specifically because I remember the magic in it. I remember feeling like, you know, when the sound design had the Phantom's voice all around the theater, how, and I knew that the Phantom wasn't there, but I loved that I got to feel that way. Like, I think that that was the thing that really hooked for me. And in terms of where I then took it and how it felt like it was sort of the right pathway was my uh, sort of frenemy at elementary school. She and I had a, a weird love-hate relationship for our whole childhood, uh, would would take the little books, the lyric books that were included in the Phantom of the Opera soundtrack tapes into the tube slide at school when we were in grade six, and we wouldn't let anyone slide down the tube slide because it had the best acoustics for us to sing the Phantom of the Opera. And of course, I was a boy soprano, and so I, and I was, could sing much higher than she could, so I told her that I was going to play Christine always. And... Uh, and I just think that for me, this sort of idea that that theater is yours, you get to hold on to it and you can take it with you and it and it is something that you get to then make or remake or reimagine um, is really exciting. And, you know, in my career thus far, I've had the great fortune of having shows that have either toured or been remounted or just a show that I've directed a couple of productions of and the the ability uh to revisit something once you sort of put a stamp on it and think about it in a new way i think is so special uh it just feels really exciting so i think that kind of where that origin started hmm. so as 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 fan of the opera that massive show being your first sort of experience of theater and i think like for a lot of people it sounds like like because of that musical theater was your gateway to the absolutely absolutely you know i loved singing uh and i was in lots of choirs and i loved music and it was definitely my my gateway in but it wasn't ever and i still don't think this way you know sometimes if i am teaching in a school and i'll say what's your favorite play and the students will say oh can we say musicals and i was like well yes of course a musical is a play um and so i i but my parents like we saw shakespeare too and we saw you know contemporary plays and we saw all sorts of stuff that wasn't necessarily musical theater i think the the sort of size of musical theater the scale the sort of wonder the you know inevitable fog all of that sort of stuff um is pretty fantastic to to witness especially as a kid and especially as a gay kid too right like there's nothing more campy than phantom of the opera uh, it's like a dude who, you know, sits alone surrounded by candles until a lady sings really high for him. Like that's the gayest <laughs> thing in the world. So I think it's probably also, you know, there's a piece of that as well that was responding to another part. of The, 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 the whole, like the people asking if they can name a musical as their, as their favorite play, <laughs> there is that, there is that, um, that some people want that separation in their minds. There's like. They have their idea of the high art of theater and the low art of the musical or something like that. Oh, for sure. I know lots of people who think they don't like musicals. And then, it, you know, I take great delight in when they realize that, oh, there is a musical they really like. Uh, and it might just be that they saw the wrong musical. And 
I think we have a problem in general in the theater community where an audience comes and sees one bad play and they decide they don't like theater rather than they didn't like that one play. Um, and so I don't know why we do that to ourselves as well. That seems a bit silly. Yeah, I kind of I I've been sort of like uh, developing a bit of a, th- a theory about about uh, why that might be. Um, I think sometimes in Canadian theater, we our media tends to celebrate things that are OK. They're good. They're not great. But because they're good, they they write about them as though they're amazing. And so then somebody who doesn't usually go to the, to the theater goes to see a play right and it's not this thing that was if they don't see why people raved about it and they then figure well i guess i just don't understand theater i i mean i think that's i think that's super valuable i think there's also you know we are we consume so much digital media yeah that moves way faster than theater does and so much like when you go to the opera or when you see shakespeare you have to tune your ear to it it's a different pace of an experience and you know if we were to try to replicate tv we'd do it badly but i also think you know it is the job of artists to serve their community because that's why we have public funding and so i do think it's good to as an artist like make sure that you have some friends who don't work in theater you know my partner doesn't work in theater and so he'll tell me if i'm if something i've made is shitty i mean he's not allowed to tell me that on opening night but he'll eventually tell me yeah yeah um and and, you know, my parents will come to see everything I do. And like none of these people have ever brought me flowers or cards or is saying my praises, you know, that, because they're just normal people. And they're like, well, you did your job. Great job. You you completed the task, you know. And so I think it's good to have some normies in your life who can sort of come and sit beside you and be like, oh, this part is weird. Why did you do that? You know, and yeah. and just ask those questions. And sometimes I have a really good answer. And sometimes they don't. And, yeah. you know, it's great to have that sort of outside perspective to think about broader accessibility of our work and how we can invite people in rather than making them feel like uh, they aren't welcome. Well, I mean, I think that's that's thing. we have all kinds of things that we do in the theater that are um, uh, pretty like if you didn't know what they were, um, you you would be left in the dark. Um, uh, Sue Edworthy will often mention that we use PWYC all over the place as though somebody who's never been to the theater will know what that means. And we have all kinds of things like that, that we, we just assume if somebody's coming, they know what PWYC means. Um, Or like kind of talk back Tuesdays or relax performances or, you know, uh, no, completely. And I, and I think sometimes I think there is a, I mean, it's kind of a snobbiness. And I say that just because I definitely have said this myself. So it's me calling out myself that I think we sometimes imagine that accessibility and I'm not speaking specifically to accessibility proposed with disability that's that's you know very I think in our community sort of heralded right now but I think general accessibility like do normal people like this or are they interested in this or can you get them to engage with this I think we sometimes look down our noses at that because, you know, it is that difference of high and low arch or whatever. But an audience is really important. And, it you know, it doesn't mean that everything you create has to have commercial value, but it does have to engage an audience. Uh, or at least in my opinion, it does. And I think that that is something that I just spend a lot of time thinking about is, is who are the people that are coming to this? Where am I giving them what they want? And where am I challenging them? And hopefully I'm doing both things at the same time. I think you're totally right, though, about about needing to engage the audience. Because after all, if you don't have an audience, you cannot have theater. You need people in the room to experience it, for it to be theater. Otherwise, it's a bunch of really sad people on a stage. <laughs> yeah. And I think that 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 um, you're right that I think that, that we do need to, to sort of like Figure out what does the potential audience want to see. It's great if our theater goers come, and as long as our theater goers keep coming, then great. But we still have that lament that we've had for the last 10 years of where is the audience going? And I think sometimes we're maybe afraid to dig too deep into why that is. I I completely agree. And I also think that... I think that... If we don't do a good job of making sure that people want to come and see the thing that we're making, then that's on us. 
Um, and you know, we uh, significantly increased the production values and overall quality of the work at the Capitol in the past year. And we have seen how that affects audiences because in a community like this, word of mouth is huge. And so our trajectory this summer was significant based on what people saw and they saw that it was good. And then they started telling their friends and then the next show was even bigger. And then the next show was even bigger. And, you know, we saw that not because people were too lazy to buy their tickets in advance. Most people at the Capitol buy their tickets in advance, but because we made really good shows that were really beautiful and we didn't take our audience for granted. You know, I've, I've been in places where people say, oh, they won't notice. They will notice. They always will notice. They don't know necessarily how to describe it or know exactly what the difference is, but they will definitely notice the difference. I was, uh, I was an usher for a number of years at uh, one of Toronto's big Mervish houses. And I could always tell when an audience leaving the theater did not particularly enjoy the show, but because of how much they paid for the show, they felt like they were supposed to. Yeah. And there are things that people say when they didn't, if they like the show, they'll say, that was a great show. If they didn't like the show, they'll say, they did such a great job. Mm-hmm. And it's so, it's so, you can almost hear it, how the, there's the, they're well, not raving. But but what is interesting also, I think, is that uh, to some degree, those people have the understanding of the difference between quality and taste, which is huge. And that's something that I spend a lot of time talking about in this community, which is like, I hope I produce things that some of you don't like. That means I'm doing my job really well. And I also hope that after you see them, there is no doubt in your mind that they are of a high quality. But that doesn't mean you're going to like them. That just means that they're of a high quality. Taste is different than quality. And I I think that, you know, to some folks, that, that message will never get through. But to some folks, it really has. And we've had really interesting conversations where people said, you know, I don't think that was my thing, but you did a really good job of it. And what a cool way to have a con- I mean, that's my favorite thing to do is to go see work and talk about what's wrong with it or how I would fix it or what I would do differently. But that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy myself in, in seeing the work. That's the whole thing. No, those are important conversations. Those are conversations that you kind of want people to have. You want people to, I mean, if somebody is, is, is passionate enough about the work to dissect it, then you've done something good. Completely, completely. That is, uh, that is my, my dream and wish. And sometimes what has, I, I have achieved here. Now, you've been at uh, the Capitol Theater uh, uh, in the artistic producer slash now artistic director role for about just over a year now. Is that right? Yeah, just over a year. So how much how much of your time is spent in Port Hope and how much back in Toronto are you like 100% in Port Hope these days? It really uh, depends on the time uh, of a day. My partner is an urban planner for the city of Toronto. So uh, we have a place in Toronto and we also have a place in Port Hope. And so... Um, right now I'm in my Port Hope place because we're in rehearsals for the Panto. Once the Panto opens, I'll probably, you know, work remotely from Toronto for a couple of days and, and take a bit of a break, uh, from being here every day. And, you know, for me, it feels like the best of both worlds. I get to live in a small town and, you know, have that sort of community experience that I really find attractive. And also I get to come back to Toronto and, to be honest, I spent a lot of time in Toronto going and seeing shows, you know, that that my colleagues have created and and trying to uh, to make sure that I still get to see the work that is being produced in the city. And I, I think a lot of people in this community who maybe exclusively live here do the same kind of thing. Though. A lot of folks, you know, go into Toronto to see shows as well. And what a what a great gift and a blessing for me to be able to create work in Port Hope for audiences in Port Hope, but also to be working with ARC and get to create work for audiences in, in Toronto, um, in Toronto. And so uh, that balance is really fun. I think it is so great for uh, a, a, a place to have a theater putting on good shows um, locally so that, yes, they can go to Toronto to see a show, but they can also walk down the street and see a show that they're going that the, a homegrown show essentially yeah in, in their own town which i think uh uh people outside of toronto don't often get no and and you know i grew up in in kingston and uh and there 
there isn't a, a main professional theater in Kingston that exists. And so, you know, it is, uh, it was very much a like, well, I'd have to go to Gannon off with a thousand on playoffs, or I'd have to go to draw. Like that was sort of what we did. And I, uh, I, have great affinity for Toronto. I've lived there a ton, but I've also like lived in the woods and lived in all sorts of weird places, um, making theater. And, you know, I think that, uh, when you have an engaged community who want to be in artistic conversation with you, there just is no greater gift than that. It's really, it is such a great place to create work. Um, when you know that people are going to have thoughts about, it, and they're going to tell you them for sure. I often joke in rehearsals about all the emails that I'm going to get. Um, and, uh, and I, and I love that. I really, I really do. Well, it's better. It's better that than apathy, right? The people are engaged and they have an opinion. What more could you ask for? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. When it, whenever we do things, we think, oh, people might be mad about that one, but, uh, but it's fun to, fun to see. Well, Rob, thank you so much. I can't think of a better place to end a conversation than right there. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh my gosh, Phil, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.